I've been away all week and it's encouraging to come back and know that like Rich and Ian are both talking about New Year's resolutions. And that's exactly what I'm going to mention to you about. So, um, and As they said, for some reason, this is a bit in the year where uh, people in our culture get a massive kick to do something new, you know, to make a change in ourselves. I think they call it turning over a new leaf. Um, and the brief that I was given when I was asked to speak was on a passage that we as a church could take uh, together into the new year as we move together uh, into 2020. In other words, like a verse that you can stick on your fridge. Um, so the verse that I've gone with is Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, and this initially came out of a, a staff Bible study we've been doing. We've been going through the book of uh, initially 1 Corinthians and now uh, 2 Corinthians. And uh, this is a passage that I was leading us through just a few weeks ago. And upon reading it, uh, I was reminded of sitting in school assemblies. Uh, and there'd be some big corporate guy at the front uh, giving some big self-encouragement speech. Uh, you know the guys, you know, your only limit is you. you know, don't, don't limit your challenges. Challenge your limits. You, know, you only know yourself once you go beyond your limits. Uh, and that's what our culture drives into us as well, isn't it? You know, self-empowerment, being your best self. Living your best life now. It was not a book plug. Do not buy that book. <laughs> so it's, it's somewhat surprising here that in uh, verse 10 that Paul writes... Uh, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that needs a bit of unpacking. So that's what we're going to do. Let's just dive straight in. First point, the thorn in the flesh. Uh, So just for a bit of context, the Apostle Paul here is writing to uh, the church in Corinth. Not a church in Corinth. You know, there only would have been uh, maybe one or so per city. So there wasn't a, a Corinth evangelical church or a a Christ Church Corinth. This would have been known as the church in Corinth. Uh, and this is a, a church that Paul uh, set up on one of his missionary journeys. And you can read about it uh, in Acts uh, chapter 18. And after leaving Corinth uh, to continue his ministry elsewhere, uh, he, he received some news that uh, the members of the church have become a bit problematic. They've begun to turn back to their old sinful ways. I don't know if you've read the book. Um, and they begin to undermine Paul and undermine the gospel. Uh, so Paul spends some time with them, uh, writing letters to them. He even goes to visit them himself. Uh, and kind of trying to work things through with them. Uh, and they've deeply hurt the guy, you know, and he's had quite a rough time with them. Uh, and after some time uh, working through things with them, he's now beginning to see some signs of true repentance. Uh, so he writes them this letter, the one we're going to look at, Second Corinthians. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quite a positive letter for most of it. Uh, and he tells them that as their minister and as their brother, he loves them and he forgives them and he, and he wants them to grow both as a church and as individuals, as Christians. Uh, but there's this little section at the end of the book, uh, the kind of last three or four chapters, where uh, he responds to some ongoing criticism from some people in the church. Uh, and some false teachers have managed to worm their way into the congregation uh, and they're trying to undermine Paul's teaching as well. And they do it more indirectly by attacking Paul. Um, we only have a copy of Paul's side of the conversation here but we can hear some of the things that they're saying uh, about him by the way that he responds you know he's a bit unimpressive look at him he's poor he makes tents for a living his bark's worse than his bite the guy's basically homeless he's weak he's unreliable look at him and instead they boast and they promote themselves look at us we're successful powerful handsome happy 
That's my film. I can't remember what film it's from. Remind me at the end. Um, look at our long list of credentials. It's almost like, you know that game Top Trumps? It's like they've kicked off this big game of Top Trumps with Paul. Look what we have. What's he got? And as hard as Paul is about this, he spends like these three chapters just pointing out how silly they sound. You know, for a start, he starts referring to them as uh, the super apostles. Well, if I'm an apostle and you're better than me, you must be a super apostle. And around chapter 10, he calls them out uh, for measuring their own success and ability against themselves. Like, surely that sounds as silly to you as it does to me. That's like writing your own CV and writing your own reference. That's like me taking a penalty kick and going... Yeah, yeah, I'm at trial for Scotland. Now, if any of you have played football with me and you've seen my penalty kicks, maybe you'd, maybe you'd actually want me to trial for Scotland. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll try, try and trial for England or something. Then. And as we turn to the passage for today, uh, we see Paul here reluctantly playing his ultimate trump card, the card to trump all cards. Let's read. Um, if you've got your Bibles, let's uh, read again. I'm going to start from verse 2, just for the sake of time. Follow along. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, but I refrain, so that no one will think more than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul had numerous visions uh, through his ministry, uh, and we can read about some of them in the book of Acts. But the one that he's talking about here, uh, between verses 2 and 4, it far exceeds the visions that he had in his ministry about you know where to go on his next missionary journey or something. Um, he's saying, look, I don't really want to play this card, but um, I've been to heaven and back. But this isn't where... Uh, oh, sorry, wrong bit. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I've been to heaven and back, and I can't even begin to explain what I saw, even if I was allowed to. And it's somewhat clear that Paul knows that this has some weight to it. That what he's experienced is a pretty big deal. And he certainly doesn't want to imply that 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 makes him some sort of next level Christian because of that. You know, and it's important for us to note that this experience is unique to Paul. You know, Paul only mentions it to say, hey, if you want to play that game, like I've got more. But this isn't where your credentials for ministry or even being a Christian come from. Look again at verse 2. You can, you can see Paul's reluctance to talk about it too much in case it comes across as unnecessary boasting. You can see it by the way he speaks of himself in the third person. And then look at verse 5. He says, I will boast about a man like this, but I will not boast about myself. Move on. Uh, Verse 7, beginning with therefore. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. That phrase, thorn in the flesh, being a metaphorical way of saying that he struggled with something. Uh, possibly a handicap of sorts, uh, maybe a, a disfigurement, or maybe a problem with the way something worked, uh, maybe a speech problem. I don't know. Maybe it was something more unseen. Maybe it was uh, maybe something 
a spiritual battle or something more psychological. You know, we're often told about the various types of trauma that Paul experiences in his ministry. And folk have spent the last 2,000 years trying to expect what this thorn could have been. Uh, And Paul doesn't tell us what it is, so we're not going to crack it in 25 minutes. But um, his choicing of word here tells us a lot. The Greek word translated thorn here is is the Greek word uh, skyops. Uh, And it can be used a few ways, one of which being a sharp stick. The type used, like a big kind of long thing with a point on the end, the type used for impaling people. So he's not talking about some little scalp in his finger. Do you call it scalp here? A little splinter in his finger that you need a little set of tweezers to pull out. He's talking like a full-on like knife in his side. It can also be used to, to describe a stake. And a type used for nailing things down. Not like a little tent peg, like something you use for a marquee or something. You know, um, The word conceited can almost mean airborne. So he's saying that this is something that he feels restricts him in ways. Maybe something that restricts his day-to-day life. Maybe something that uh, restricts his ministry. Or he feels affects his usefulness to the Lord. So something that dug deep and something that pins him down, holds him back. And the word that's uh, translated torment at the end of the verse closer translates to, to being struck or beaten up. This, this same word uh, occurs a few other places in the New Testament, two of which being uh, in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, where the Jewish leaders are spitting and slapping and striking Jesus. You know, something that was initiated uh, to make him give up, something that would make him feel hopeless. So we can see that this is clearly a big deal for Paul. And he sees it as a problem uh, that needs to be dealt with, and he sees the only way to deal with it is to ask for it to be removed completely. So he pleads and he toils with the Lord. Look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. He's saying, Lord, do something about it. If only this didn't exist, I could, I could maybe be more fruitful for you. You know, doesn't this sound familiar to us? Lord, take it away completely. If only I had blank. If only the Lord would do blank for me, then I could do blank for him. Our own individual thorns come in various forms and shapes and sizes. You know, I'm not your minister. I don't know everything that's going on in your lives. Um, maybe it's a struggle with significant pain uh, or a long-term health issue, health issue. I don't know, maybe it's a people thing. Maybe you've got a noisy neighbour that keeps you up at night. They say if you don't have a noisy neighbour, it's probably you. But, you know, maybe it's a frustrating person you work with. Or a close family member that makes being a Christian at home really difficult. Maybe it's some sort of spiritual battle that we really, really struggle to shake. Or maybe something like a financial problem. I don't know. But how many times have we prayed that the Lord do something about it? And that he do something about it now on our terms? I found myself praying this very thing both for myself and for some of you this past year. And how often does the world conclude that there can't be a God because we still suffer? You know, you know, if there was a God, he'd fix everything. We've heard it all. How can he be a God of love when, when he lets this kind of stuff happen? So, second, is there purpose in our pain? Is there purpose in our suffering? Why do we suffer? Why does God allow these things to happen? Firstly, to be honest, I suppose that when the world points the finger at God and says oh, it's his fault, I suppose that the simple fact that they even recognise suffering as, as a step in the right direction. Well-known uh, atheist 
Professor Richard Dawkins puts it this way. He says, uh, it doesn't matter who or what gets hurt in the process. Genes don't care about suffering because they don't care about anything. Nature is neither kind nor unkind. She's neither against suffering nor for it. It only matters as it affects the survival of DNA. Dawkins here is, is suggesting that all life is. It's a big hunger game. You know, survival of the fittest. Is that really all it is? I guess the other end of the scale is when we try to convince ourselves that you know, Jesus suffered so we don't have to. You know, and this is, that's something that uh, prosperity gospel teachers make from the pulpit. You know, it's a, it's a mistake they make. So it's important that we as a church have a good theology of suffering so that when it comes, you know, if it isn't here already for us, uh, that, that we can see that God might have a purpose in our struggles and suffering. Suffering is an inevitable part of the Christian walk. Firstly, because it's an effect of the fall back in Genesis 3. Secondly, because the pages of the Bible and the life of Jesus tells us so. You know, it's not hidden in the small print. And in God's great wisdom and sovereignty, it can be used in the work, making us, making us into the image of Christ. Both as individuals and together as the body of Christ. You know, Jesus says uh, in Mark uh, chapter 8, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, this isn't working, typical REC, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? Like, Why would we want it to be hard? Why would we want to suffer? Well, think about this. Just for a second. Think about this. You've been doing it all your life. From when you were a little child. You know, all those times that we didn't get what we wanted. You know, we're taught patience. We're taught about how the word no works. And all those times that we skint our knees, we learn not to run on the tarmac, you know. And that, that trajectory has just continued all the way through our lives. And just as I'd wish, uh, just as I'd wished not to learn, sorry, just as I'd wished uh, to learn not to run on the tarmac without having to skim my knees first. So people that have been in the depths of suffering, in the darkness of suffering, say that, that they will happily have learned what they learned in that time without having to, to have the suffering to do so, if that makes sense. And Jesus himself experienced the sufferings of life just as we do, growing and learning. The author of the Bible book Hebrews uh, writes that Jesus, you know, the fullest man there ever was, learned obedience through what he suffered. And the, the line we were singing uh, in Once in Royal David City, we've been singing it for the past month, if you don't know it but off by heart by now, I don't know what, where you've been. It says, For he is our childhood's pattern, day by day like us he grew. He was little, weak and helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feels for our sadness and he shares in our gladness. So Paul has come to see that there's a purpose through the thorn in his flesh. Firstly, the first thing, if you take notes, to humble us. 
We've just read from uh, the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible. That's the one that's in the chair in front of you. But if you read this same verse in the English Standard, or if you're old school, the King James, it reads a bit differently. Uh, I'm going to show you. This is a, a little trick that I learned on the course I've been doing in Sheffield. Um, so it says, to keep, me from, uh, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Maybe you've noticed it already, but this phrase, to keep me from becoming conceited, is repeated twice in, in this translation, meaning that there came a time where Paul came to realise the purpose of the thorn in his flesh. And how many times did he pay? Pray. Three. Three times he prayed. Three times he resolved to pray about it. Three times it drove him to prayer. There's also something very final about that, you know. Let's read it again. Look with me. Verse 8. Three times it gives us a specific number. I pleaded. Past tense. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Meaning that God answered him. And it wasn't the answer he was expecting. Some of you will, well know that as well as working in the church office and sending you annoying emails all week, that I also work in a, a coffee shop in town. And it's allowed for some amazing, great gospel opportunities and conversations. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to somebody I work with in the kitchen. And uh, he's having a, quite a rough time at the moment. And uh, I said, mate, how, how can I pray for you? And he, he looked at me and a bit weird and said, pray? Does that even work? Does he even answer? I said, well, it depends what you mean by work. He always answers. But it might not always be the answer we're expecting. So there was purpose in Paul's pain to humble him because of the, quote, surpassing greatness of the revelation that he experienced. And God knows that Paul... Uh, was likely to feel puffed up and proud from his experience. Let's be honest, who wouldn't? You know, he had a glimpse of heaven of all places. But pride is a dangerous place for us to be. Pride is what threw Satan out of heaven. Pride is what threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. Pride is what brought King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel to his knees. And the Bible is littered of examples of, of people reveling in self. Look what I've done. And God just bring them to their knees again. And so he allows this thorn, this messenger of Satan, to pester him. To keep him humble. Secondly, to draw us to himself. I found this news article online uh, from last year that showed that approximately half of the adults in the UK, Christian or non-Christian, have prayed in times of suffering. You know, and even we as Christians sometimes find it easier to, to pray when we're suffering or somebody we know is suffering. Suffering and struggle forces us to realise that when we try to turn to, some, to something other than God for security, for solace, for comfort, that it's, it's not going to work. And us being stretched and pushed beyond our ability teaches us not to rely on ourselves but on God because that ultimately is where our uh, strength and power comes from. Which brings us neatly to our third point. That as much as there is a purpose in Paul's thorn and in our suffering, so there is a great provision. Power in our weakness. 
Read with me, verse 8 again. Three times I pleaded to the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, and here's the promise, here's what I want you to stick to your fridge, here's what I want you to hold on to this year. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weaknesses. There used to be an advert uh, on the telly, I don't know if you've seen it here, it was for Iron Brew. Uh, (laughs) And they used to have a slogan that was, Iron Brew gets you through. And it'd be, the adverts were, were short and it was about like there'd be a horrendous, embarrassing situation. And, uh, but all was fine because you had your trusty can of iron brew. Take a sip of it. I've, actually, I've got one here. And just to say, this was the most appropriate one I could find. Okay, so. Dad, this is my new boyfriend, Jeff. Nice to meet you, Mrs. McGee. Hey, you two, son. So, any plans? Just going to take Wembley here for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) He's a cheeky wee fella, eh? I got permission from the elders to show that, by the way, so. So God here is saying, like, um, it, it won't just get you through and then I'll top you up again when you need a bit more, just like the guy in the video there. He's basically, he's taking us to the Iron Brew warehouse. You know, he's taking us to the place where Iron Brew is manufactured. He's taking us to the Highland Spring where it flows in eternal abundance. Think about the story in the Gospels about the feeding of the 5,000. You know, they begin with five loaves and two fish, and everyone has their fill. And afterwards, the disciples retrieve 12 baskets. You know, the Lord provides for his people. He's saying, Paul, even though I've allowed this thorn to dig into you, to humble you, I want you to understand and to remember that in every moment of struggle and suffering and pain, that I have provided for you. My grace is more than enough, sufficient. In Paul's letter to the, the church in Ephesus, he opens the letter by reminding them of the grace that God has lavished on us and undeserving people. For the sake of time, we're going to keep moving on in the sentence. It says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. His power in weakness. That's a bit of a juxtaposition there, isn't it? But these two things are married by that phrase in the middle, made perfect. In Greek, that's one word. And it's also the same word used that when Jesus hangs on the cross and he says, it is finished. So what you can see, uh, the complete fullness of what God's saying here, that his strength is completely made perfect in weakness. But what does that mean? Well, don't turn to it. But in Matthew chapter 26... Someone else prays three times for something painful to be removed from them. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as his earthly mission reaches its absolute climax, prays to the Father. 
If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And the cup is a known symbol for God's wrath in the Bible. Jesus experienced pain and suffering far deeper than we will ever understand. His life was a joke to the opposition around him. And his death was done with the most humiliating punishment that the Romans had in their arsenal. But ultimately the cross is the greatest symbol of human weakness and yet met by the immense power of God as he raised him from the grave three days later. (coughs) Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry. uh, So no doubt he he wasn't in the garden with the apostles uh, when Jesus was praying. Uh, But chances are that when he came to know Jesus for himself, that the apostles probably told Paul this message about what happened in the garden. And maybe it was through hearing of that that he received his answer from the Lord when it felt like the Lord wasn't answering his prayer. And it's likely that uh, when Paul looked at Christ in the garden, he took comfort and confidence knowing that God later raised him. Paul deeply wanted the Corinthian church to know that he loves them and that he cares for them and he wants them to grow both as a church and as individuals in the same way that we as a church want to grow, don't we? But ultimately that power to grow can't come from ourselves. It can only come from him. And we come to realise that when we recognise our limits and our weaknesses when we don't hide them. But remember, God is sovereign And he can use those painful situations that we find ourselves in. The situations that for us, at times, it can seem like there is no hope. He can and will use them to be at work in us. For his power is made perfect in weakness. And here's your uh, sermonly C.S. Lewis quote. Somebody once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? And his answer was, Why not? They're the only ones that can take it. Church, let the way we respond to suffering be a witness to the grace of God in our own lives. Know that even amid our pain and suffering that God is at work. And that's why, as I mentioned at the start, Paul can say, verse 10, For Christ's sake I delight in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because that's when Christ's power rests on us. That's when he does his work in us. And like I said at the start, this is the bit of the year when we all get a massive kick to do something, to make a change in ourselves. But as Christians, remember that God is continually changing us. That word we call sanctification. Layers and layers deeper than the change we think we can make in any New Year's resolution. Maybe you're here and this is the first time you've heard about this Jesus. Come and chat afterwards about it. Come chat to Ian or Fenton or Rich. Let's talk, let's talk it through further. Or, alternatively, come tell me I'm wrong. But let me leave you with this. This is taken from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. That's you. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let me pray.